Then I didn't really know what I was doing. I spent two years at Cambridge, you know, going to movies, drinking a lot, chasing girls. There weren't very many in those days. Um, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And then eventually <laughs> someone had the same brutal conversation, which is, you're not really cut out to be a mathematician. And, um, and I said, well, what can I do instead? And they said, well, there's only one thing for people like you. It's called economics. So that was me. <laughs> You just heard the British-American economic science laureate Sir Angus Deaton. I'm Fanny Harjestam, the producer of Nobel Prize Conversations. One person's honest words can change your whole life. That was certainly the case for Angus Deaton. You're not hearing what you need to hear, his music teacher said one day to the then 16-year-old Angus. With those words, he abandoned his dream of being a pianist. He wasn't good enough, not at playing the piano, nor at playing rugby or at mathematics. Only after these defeats did he finally discover economics. And at this he was good enough. Five decades later, on a December afternoon in Stockholm, he shook hands with the King of Sweden as he received the prize in economic sciences. The host for the Nobel Prize Conversations podcast is Adam Smith. Adam is the chief scientific officer at Nobel Media, an outreach arm of the Nobel Prize. This podcast series is brought to you with support from Riksbanken, the Swedish central bank. So now, Angus Deaton and some wild ideas, beautiful places and the role trout fishing can play in problem solving. One of the things that's I'd like to ask about is your working relationship with your wife, Anne Case. So all yes. the work you've been describing has been done together. It's, an, yes. it's, a, it's a fairly rare to have a collaborative team, husband and wife, not, not unique, but rare. What is it that makes you such a good collaborative team? <laughs> good question. I don't know the answer to that. When we first got married 20 years ago, we tried to collaborate and we fought over every word. So we said, we're never going to do that again. <laughs> and we gave up for a long time. And um, this was, you know, maybe we're older and wiser and a little gentler, a little less aggressive. Um, so <laughs> it, it became possible to collaborate. And we work very well together. So... You know, Anne has a lot of lower back pain, and she, in some ways, this thing started by thinking about um, pain, and she wanted to know what was happening to pain in her age group. And so this rise in pain was, in some sense, the first thing um, we found. Um, I was working on happiness, and I was curious as to whether places that were particularly happy were protected from suicide or not. So I was thinking about suicide and we were sitting in the same room doing this and then, you know, it, it sort of then rolled from there. This theme of you and Anne as collaborators, are you also a good collaborator? Do you work well with your peers? Um, I've had a lot of good co-authors. So I think, yes. I mean, I think it always depends on getting a fit and that you don't want to be too similar. Um, so the other one will see things that you don't see. 
you know, for instance, a lot of my collaborators, not just Anne, though I think it's true of Anne too, um, I tend to be, to have wild ideas. Um, if, if I wanted to be obnoxious, I'd say I'm quite creative. I mean, I think of new ways of doing things. Um, but they're often wrong. Um, and so I need people who are just much more grounded than I am, but know a huge amount, um, you know, who really <laughs> well into this, whatever it is, and say, you know, that is just crazy. That's not right. <laughs> and then, you know, slowly talk me down from whatever crazy tree I've got myself into and say, you know, that just is not coherent. It doesn't hang together. Mm. And Anne's very good at doing that. Um, other people I've worked with um, have been very good at doing that too. Um, my collaboration with Jean Drez in India has been wonderful at that um, because he's so grounded in an almost literal way. I mean, he wanders around India working with poor people and trying to figure out how they live their lives. And having someone who knows that and is a great economist into the bargain is just like, it's gold, pure gold. Just weeks after receiving the prize in economic sciences, Deaton and his wife, fellow Princeton economist Anne Case, published a paper revealing an alarming trend in U.S. society. They identified a surge in suicides and other so-called deaths of despair among high school-educated white men and women. This trend is so strong that middle-aged white people are the only demographic group in America for decades to see a rising rate of mortality. In 2020, the couple will publish a book on this subject. I'm never quite sure what a premise is, but anyway, I, I can tell you how it started and where it comes from. I mean, we discovered in, I think, summer of 2014, um, I think then, or maybe 2013, um, we'd been playing with the mortality data in the U.S. and discovered that there was this very strange thing going on that mortality rates, um, which had been steadily falling, um, had stopped and reversed to some extent. And um, especially among whites and especially among whites in middle age. Um, and, you know, at first we thought that had to be an error, but it was an error. And we've sort of been tracking it down ever since. Um, you know, so the first stage was, you know, how could this possibly be happening? Because we've had a hundred years of mortality decline for that group, um, and what was happening that the fastest rising causes of death were um, people taking overdoses of drugs, um, people killing themselves, straight suicides, and also alcoholic liver disease. And you know, I think it was Anne who coined the name Deaths of Despair because all of these deaths are things really by your own hand in some way. Um, um, but also it suggested that if you were turning to the bottle, to the needle, um, or to the gun on yourself, um, something was really badly wrong in your life. Is it a problem that's exclusive to the U.S.? Well, that's a good question, and that's something I'm going to be talking about in London next week quite a lot. Um, the, the, the threat is there to other countries, um, so that, but nothing like what's happening in the U.S. is happening in those other countries. I mean, 
you know, there were seven, more than 70,000 people in the U.S. died from drug overdose alone last, well, not last year. I guess it's now 2017. We don't have the data for 2018 yet. Um, and the deaths of despair, that same category in midlife, is also rising in Britain or in England where we have the numbers. And it's now in that midlife age group, 45 to 54, um, larger um, than heart disease for both men and for women. Um, in Britain, it's mostly in the Northeast um, and also in some of these famous decaying seaside towns like Blackpool, mm. for example. So the, the real question, one of the big questions is whether the U.S. is simply a precursor of something that's going to happen elsewhere um, or whether this is a peculiarly um, U.S. dysfunction um, and it does look that other English-speaking countries, Australia had something of an epidemic, um, Ireland has a bit, um, and Sweden. Um, not as bad, but you can see it there too. Mm. And so this, and this is unexpected because we thought generally living conditions were getting better for people. People should be getting happier. And we know that people are living longer in general in terms of their life expectancy. So, well, they're not anymore. Then, um, that's the, the – um, well, happiness is a much disputed thing and we could talk about that later if you like. Mm. But, um, you know, if you look at um, life expectancy at birth um, for the whole U.S. population, that has now fallen three years in a row. And that's the first time that's happened since the First World War and the influenza epidemic which succeeded it. So do you and Anne have an explanation for this? Yes. <laughs> it may or may not be right, but we have an explanation. Um, and we sort of track it back through various stages. So first is it's not just deaths from these three things. Um, other things are going on. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of bad things are happening to people. So one of the first things we looked at, and in fact, even before the deaths, we were looking at this, which is morbidity. So there's been a big increase in pain, um, all sorts of pain, sciatic pain, neck pain, back pain, um, from people in middle age. So the, the people in middle age now have actually report more pain than the elderly. Um, they'll probably report even more pain when they get to be old. Um, but there's been a real upsurge in pain. That in itself is extraordinary. We Again, one would have thought life was getting easier on the body. And in fact, um, you know, the first thing we thought about here was, you know, these occupations have changed and people used to work on assembly lines and now they're on their feet all day in McDonald's. But it turns out that if that just doesn't work at all, and in fact, the, the um, people report less pain in like McDonald's than did an assembly line. Assembly line is a pretty tough job. Um, and it's not clear that anything in the pattern occupations have done that. So we don't know what that is. And we think it may be part of, um, you know, a general malaise. So that I think the pain researchers now think that, um, you know, pain is, you know, um, psychic pain is very similar to physical pain, and they don't really accept that distinction anymore. So this could be the psychic pain associated with your life coming apart. And that's what we really focus on. Now, a really important thing is here is this is happening to less educated white people. 
Um, so if you get a college, if you have a four-year college degree, which is how long it takes to get a college degree in America, if you got a four-year college degree, you're pretty much exempt from all of this. There are little bits of increase, but you just don't see it. Nearly all of it is between people who don't have a college degree. Um, so that points you in a direction. It's not that the education is what's doing it. It's that the things that come with, you know, not having a college degree are problematic. Um, for people. And there's a lot of terrible dysfunction that's been documented by the sociologists in particular about marriages coming apart. Marriage rates have gone down among less educated whites. Um, they still cohabit, but unlike in Sweden or in Germany, these cohabitations are very unstable. They last for a few years. They often have kids. And then the woman kicks the guy out because she finds someone who has a you know, better prospects. And so you get these men in their 50s who may have had two or three sets of kids and don't know any of them because they're all living with other men. Um, you know, so family life is really coming apart. Um, the participation in the labor force has gone down. So the sort of old world of work and family and the good jobs and the respect and status that that brought has sort of vanished for people who don't have a college degree. And that we see as the sort of, if you like, the fundamental cause of despair. Now, of course, the question is, why did it vanish? So that takes you back another step. But that intermediate step is very important because we can document that really very well. Mm -hmm. And you can see all those things happen. People are not going to church anymore. Now, I know in Sweden, no one's ever been to church forever, or at least for a long time. But in America, church going has been very important, and it's falling pretty dramatically. And again, especially among people um, without a college degree. So there's a feeling that all these sources of support have sort of evaporated. And perhaps the most important thing of all is wages are going down. Mm -hmm. So um, the real wages for people without a college degree have been falling for 50 years now, half a century. Um, you know, it's something that you don't really expect to happen in a successful capitalist society. So it's down to the erosion of pretty much everything that one was expecting to encounter in life, and it's no longer there as a, a support mechanism. Right. Yeah. Hmm. And, you know, we think it, it really is the, the roots of this lie in the labor market so that, you know, you don't – very few people get lower wages in jobs they're in. So the lower wages come from having lost good jobs and replaced them by not so good jobs or not good jobs at all. Mm. And, you know, that world that was supported by these good jobs um, really has gone away. Let's continue on the theme of you and Anne and take a break from economics and talk about okay. Montana. <laughs> because All right. you, you, so you spend the summers up there together, I understand, some of the time fishing. Yeah. Summers would be nice, but it's usually four or five weeks. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of sacred time in the sense we use the word sacred Actually, in a good sense, too, accurate sense. But it's sacred in that we don't accept invitations to go anywhere else except maybe, you know, family weddings or something. Mm. Um, but we don't go talk or 
accept invitations from the Nobel Foundation to go and do podcasts or <laughs> um, <laughs> events on aging. Um, and, and so th that keeps us sane by giving us five weeks of quiet um, in one of the most beautiful places on earth. And yes, I've been a trout fisherman since I was eight years old um, and had never occurred to her to do anything as foolish. Um, but when she got together with me, um, I introduced her to this, and it became very clear within two or three days of this that she had an enormous natural talent for it. So now we tend to float down the Madison River in a float boat, and I sit and watch her catch fish. <laughs> sounds sounds idyllic. What? <laughs> well, it is if you don't mind your wife catching all the fish. <laughs> I've gotten used to it. What's her secret? What what makes you a talented fly fisherman or woman? Sorry. I think she sees things very quickly. Um, so she sees small changes in things happening that other people wouldn't see or I wouldn't see. So, you know, if a fish is about to strike your line, there's something that's happening and she sees it. Uh, so that I didn't realize there was, I mean, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm sad to say I'm not a, a great fisherman person. Right. But so what is the art? What is the art of getting it right? Seeing things? Uh, seeing things is important. I mean, there's, you know, there's probably more fishing literature than there is religion literature, which is <laughs> saying something. And everybody has their own, you know, it's high, high priests of this. Um, for me, it's always been just getting out into beautiful places and thinking about something else very intently. That, that for me, is, is really um, mostly, um, I think, what it is. Um, for me, too, the um, if I'm thinking, yeah, the good thing about fishing is you, you really do have to focus on what you're doing. It, you're not like throwing something out and sitting at a hole in the ice waiting for something to happen, right? I mean, you're very active and you're throwing flies out there and you're moving them and you're watching them and trying to do things. And you're risking getting in tangles all the time and all this sort of stuff. Um, and so it's pretty absorbing. And often for me, that frees up some part of my mind that I don't control to think about things and often come up with problem, solutions to problems I'm working on. That's interesting because, yes, um I mean, like Kekulé coming up with the structure of the benzene ring on a while dozing on a carriage ride or whatever they say. It, right. it, it's true, right. is it? Ideas formulate on their own while you're doing something else. Well, it works for me. I don't know whether it works for everybody, but I mm. suspect it's not uncommon. The, the connecting thing here are rivers on, in Montana, or at least nice rivers to, where you're fishing, nice locations. I wonder if it's possible to do this in a in a grotty location? <laughs> um, well, I grew up in a pretty grotty location. <laughs> I spent a lot of my life trying to get out of them. I think that's right, though. For us, the beautiful locations are extremely important. I mean, Edinburgh, where I grew up in the 40s and 50s, was grimy and dirty and covered in soot. Mm. And the climate there is not exactly um, spectacular. Though it's also true that Scotland can be extraordinarily beautiful on the two days a year when the sun shines. And maybe, you know, I was going looking for that. <laughs> I know when we finished the book, we, we'd set ourselves a deadline of February the 28th um, for the first draft. 
And we knew we had a lot of work to do in that last week. And we went to a resort in Mexico on the Gulf of Cortez, on the Sea of Cortez. And got these lovely rooms overlooking the ocean where we could look up and see the whales um, playing with their young. You know, we got up at 6 in the morning and wrote until 10 at night and it got done. Goodness. In this really beautiful place. Okay, so that speaks volumes. But what a, what it sounds a wonderful place to be. But goodness, your work ethic is strong. <laughs> I suppose so. Well, you know, I'm a good Scottish Calvinist. Both Angus Deaton's parents left school at a very young age. His father spent much of his time as a young man catching up on his education. First at the local night school, then in Edinburgh, at the technical school in the evenings, where he completed high school. Eventually he qualified as a civil engineer, so he was determined that Angus would have the educational advantages that he had struggled so hard for. And you were a hard-working child in, in Edinburgh, in Old Reeky. I guess. My father thought I was really quite idle and didn't work nearly hard enough. And, you know, he was denied the opportunity to go to high school. And I think it was very hard for him to watch me having all the opportunities I had and taking my time to go fishing or something. That's interesting because you've written of, about how he helped you, how he, or rather how he pushed you. So yes. he, he wanted you to have the opportunities but then wanted you to really grab them. Yeah, that makes sense, no? Mm -hmm. I mean, he'd struggled very hard to give me these opportunities and it would not have been he, he thought I should be using them to the full. What did he hope he'd, you'd do with them? I don't know, but I think it was, you know, once I got to university, you know, it, it's very hard because once you're at university, if you come from a background like that, there's a huge gulf between you and your parents, which is very hard to cross. But, you know, I'm not sure I've always worked all that hard. I've always found time to play, and I've always found it really hard to work on things that I wasn't interested in. <laughs> and I think that was probably what irritated my dad. Angus Deaton's father dreamt of sending his son to Fetty's College, Scotland's most exclusive and expensive school. At first, it seemed impossible. But it turned out that Fettis College admitted two foundation scholars a year out of a class of about 90 on the basis of a competitive exam. In your biography, you write how you got this foundation scholarship to Fetis, which right. was pretty hard to achieve. So did you love all the subjects at school? I guess parents listening to this might be wondering how they can cajole their children to do well. <laughs> well, I, I think I was certainly good at you know, sprinting over short distances in that sort of way. And, you know, my dad had seen Fettis College from the street, as it were, in Edinburgh, and people had told him it was the best school in Scotland, which it may or may not have been. Um, and he decided he was going to move heaven and earth to get me there and then discovered there were these scholarships. And But the the most amazing thing, actually, is that he persuaded the teachers at Hoyk High School, where I was at that time, to give me individual one-on-one -on -one tuition on the subjects that I had to take for the scholarship exam. Um, and that still, to this day, seems to me a quite extraordinary thing. 
actually, I was going to say that I was their star pupil, but I don't think I was. But they took time, their own time, to help me cram, and a lot of it was cramming, mm. these subjects. And I think that's pretty remarkable. I'm sure my dad didn't pay them. He didn't have any money. I suppose for a teacher, it's it's a joy to find a pupil who is willing or at least willing to be crammed and responsive. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And I discovered just the other day that there was a kid at the school, at high school, the same time I was there who got the Nobel Prize in 2017. <laughs> ah, okay. So there's some, we should, if we could, be investigating what it was that was the secret of high school. It was in the water at high school. Or the teacher. He was called Richard, Richard Henderson, I think. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, and he came, I think I knew him because he came from quite a long way away, a tiny village called New Castleton. And we would see each other at the train station in the morning, me coming from the north and him coming from the south, and then walk the mile to the school. Um, he's, I think, about four months older than me, so because of the accident of the year, we weren't in the same class. Hmm. Well, it might just be a happenstance, but it sounds like there was, some, there was something remarkable about the teaching there. That's, I think that's true. Actually, and one of my exact classmates in the 20-person class I was in, um, and I'm blocking on the name for a moment, but he became vice president of the Royal Society and, and master of Churchill College, Cambridge, and he's currently the science advisor to the Royal Economic Society, Sir David Wallace. Mm -hmm. And he and I sort of competed <laughs> in our class. Um, through high school. But I just do remember there being a lot of extraordinary teaching there. And I also remember when I went to Fetus, there were one or two extraordinary teachers, one who's now Sir Eric Anderson, who became headmaster of Eton, who was right. very influential on me and who I'll actually be seeing in Oxford next week. Um, but there were a lot of schoolmasters who were the sort of caricature of the ineffective, you know, old yeah. army teachers that you would meet in a caricature of a British public school. And they were very ineffective, didn't know anything. Well, I suppose it only takes one or two good encounters to push one in the right direction. So, Yeah, I think that's probably right. Mm. Yeah. I've heard you describe yourself previously as feeling something of an outsider. Yeah. What does that mean? I mean, Scotland is not a great place to be a kid or to be a sensitive kid, I think. And so I remember, you know, when I went to infant school from like five to nine, there were a lot of bullies. There were a lot of really tough guys. Um, and I was scared a lot of the time. So that's sort of one form of being an outsider. And, you know, then we moved to the borders of Scotland. And while it was great to go out and fish for trout and tramp in the woods, um, these kids were very, very different. I mean, these were agricultural laborers' kids. They were farmers' kids. Um, and again, that was a different sort of society, but it was not one that I belonged to. And, you know, when I went to Fetus, um once again, you know, this is a British public school in Scotland, and a lot of these people had Scottish roots of one sort or another, but they weren't really Scottish. Mm. Um, or to me, they weren't. They were part of this sort of landed aristocracy that was the imperial um, government of Scotland. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, I had a pretty heavy Scottish accent. None of these kids did. And again, you know, I was really an outsider. And, you know, maybe that's why work was a good place for me because, you know, I could retreat there and it was a relatively safe place. Mm. You know, and then when I went to London and I'd come out of this very fancy public school or go to Cambridge, um, that was in the days when those schools were feeder schools for Cambridge. So I think there were maybe a dozen of us went from my school to Cambridge. And, you know, most of them were pretty well-heeled, upper-class sort of toffs. And I guess I was trying to um, be like them. But again, um, until I started studying economics, I really did feel sort of out of place. And then, you know, when I came to America even, you know, I don't have a real PhD in economics. I never took a course in economics. Um, I'm sort of self-taught to a large degree. Um, and so I always felt that all the other people of my cohort sort of just knew so much more than I did because they'd been properly trained. And I still feel that to some extent these days that, um, you know, it, it, over the years I discovered it was not a disadvantage um, because not knowing things is you have to rediscover them for yourself. And when you discover for yourself, you might discover that what people think is not really right. And also when you discover from yourself, they usually are right, but you figure it out and you understand it at a deeper level. So I don't think it did me any harm in the end. Mm. But, you know, so this potted history I just told you, there was always sort of an in crowd and I was never part of it. Perhaps being an outsider makes you a good observer as well. Of some things, I think. I, I don't think all things, you know. No. No. Well, it's obviously served you well, whatever it is, and I guess... You well, it's served me well in some respects, maybe not in all respects. I mean, I have a grandson, um, Julian. He has. He's always surrounded with friends, and <laughs> they really love him. And he's incredibly emotionally sensitive to what they feel and what's going on with them in a way that I certainly never was as a kid. You know, it's different sorts of talents. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a big deal. It's a wonderful thing to win a Nobel Prize. But there are other things in the world that are important too. When did you decide you wanted to become an economist? By accident. Um, I, you know, went to Cambridge as a mathematician. Um, I, you know, originally thought I wanted to be a musician. And, um, but another one of the exceptional teachers at FedEx, in a moment of brutal honesty, explained to me that I just, you know, just didn't have the talent. How old were you and then? I, <laughs> I must have been maybe 16. Um, and, you know, he was not trying to be – he was just commenting. He said, you know, you're not hearing properly. You don't hear what you need to hear. And I realized that was true. And that saved me a lot of heartbreak because I decided, you know, I was going to do that. What sort of musician so, were you imagining you'd be? A classical pianist or what? Well, probably there were organ scholarships at Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And I think I had fantasized about getting one of those. And I did play the organ in, in school. Right. Um, but it was a fantasy and it made no sense. Um, and so I focused on the two things I was better at, which was playing rugby and, um, and maths. 
Did you consider a professional uh, rugby career? <laughs> well, for a long time. I now know it was less true than I thought it was. For many years, I had thought I got into Cambridge in order to play rugby. <laughs> and, you know, it was clear that I was being groomed for that when I got there. Mm -hmm. um, but I decided this was more than I could, you know. It <laughs> involved a total commitment of time and no ability to do anything else. And so I bailed out of that. But then I didn't really know what I was doing. I spent two years at Cambridge, you know, going to movies, drinking a lot, chasing girls. There weren't very many in those days. <laughs> um, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And then eventually <laughs> someone had the same brutal conversation, which is you're not really cut out to be a mathematician. And... Um, and I said, well, what can I do instead? And they said, well, there's only one thing for people like you. It's called economics. So that was me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it didn't take long for me to discover that this was fun. And I really liked it. And I could use the mathematics I knew. And I liked to write. And I was good at it. And I liked history. And I loved the ability to be able to combine writing, history, and mathematics, which economics is pretty well suited to doing, I think. The economics that you ended up doing is very much focused on individuals and, and especially individuals in less great circumstances. Was that an early decision that you wanted to work on, on humanity I, I don't make decisions about things like that. I wander around trying to find things that are interesting. Uh, but in some sense, the answer to that probably yes, but it was certainly never conscious. Hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, I'd always, um, you know, these issues surrounding poverty and inequality um, always interested me. I was fortunate enough, I think the first talk I ever went to in economics um, was given by Tony Atkinson, um, and that must have been in like 1969. Anthony Atkinson, or Tony as he was called, was a British economist who focused on inequality and poverty for over 40 years. He has been called the godfather of historical studies of income and wealth. Tony had this paper about social welfare functions and the measurement of inequality, which became a, you know, one of the great papers of all time. I think it was published in 1970. And I heard him present that in a seminar, and I thought, oh boy, these seminars are pretty good. <laughs> you know, you know, so I saw probably the all-time best seminar of my life and thought it was the average. Um, but um, it's true that I've always focused on individuals, but I'm also very interested in the macro consequences of that. Well, most of the really interesting things are to do with like politics and how countries behave. And there's something there that's not just you can't get at just by looking at individuals. Mm. Many laureates like to say how they were advised early to address a really big problem. Uh, something that other people weren't tackling, something that would demand immense amounts. Not of, me. No. Nope. Not me. That's not been... Nope. Not your I approach. didn't have any advice. I mean, there was <laughs> no one advising me to do anything. I didn't really do a PhD in the traditional sense, and I didn't really have any advisors. I had role models. I really liked Richard Stone. Sir John Richard Nicholas Stone was another British economist who meant a lot to Angus Deaton. He worked on national income accounting, that is, a set of principles and methods used to measure the income and productivity of a country. 
Stone is also a Fellow Laureate, awarded in 1984. And for me, it was his whole life I really liked, and the things he worked on. Do you think that's, for you, that's obviously been important. Do you think it's an important thing in general to, to look at people's lives and to try and emulate them, read biographies? I love reading biographies. Mm. I love reading history. I, I don't know in what sense it's important, but... Um, and, you know, there's a fair amount of history in Anne's my book. And, you know, there's this very clever saying, which our publisher says is not too trite to use about history never repeating itself, but it does rhyme. <laughs> um, I think Mark Twain said that. And for me, that's, that's you know, and biographies are like that too. You see these stories, which are sort of warnings or parallels, partial parallels. And you certainly learn something from them. And I think it's something very important. But, you know, you'd probably have to ask a real historian mm. as to why historians and, study history. And that was a beautiful Mark Twain quote. You can, there's a Mark Twain quote for everything, isn't there, really? Is it? Yeah, there probably is. <laughs> <laughs> sort of Mark Twain, Shakespeare, or Dorothy Parker. <laughs> yeah. I think my favorite Mark Twain is, or at least the one that pops into my head, was is when somebody came into his office and saw books strewn all over the floor and said, why are there so many books all over the floor? And he said, well, it's so hard to borrow bookshelves. <laughs> we very frequently have groups of students, and you obviously are constantly surrounded by young people sort of trying to get to the secret of what it is to be a successful economist. Perhaps they even ask, right. how do you get, an, how do you get a, a prize in economic sciences? And there isn't an answer, of course. And there shouldn't be at that sort of level either. Um, you know, it's not a sensible ambition to want to win a Nobel Prize. No, even if the question is, how do I do good work? It's hard, right. to, answer. It's hard to answer. What would you say if somebody's asked you that question? Would you just say work hard? Well, working hard is obviously important. Um, figuring out things for yourself is very important. Um, finding people to help. That's something I think I did do, which not everybody does. One of the curses of economics, and I'm not sure it's true in other subjects, is graduate students don't ever want to pretend that they don't understand something. <laughs> so it's actually very hard to get through to them a lot of the time because they'll just nod. They don't want to show much, shown up in front of their class. And, you know, there's a lot of competition, and I, that must be true in other fields too. You know, there's a cohort of people, all of whom are very smart and all of whom are trying to succeed. And that often inhibits um, asking for help. And I've always, I think, been pretty good at finding people who knew more than me and asking them to explain something to me. And people react incredibly well to that. Yes, so sir. for me, that's been a very effective thing, and I would tell people to do that. Well, you, yeah. mentioned, you mentioned that you originally intended to be a musician or hoped to be a musician. Do you, is music still part in, playing a big part in your life? Not as big as it um, once did. I think for me it was a fantasy more than a <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all, hope. We all need fantasies. <laughs> yeah. No, and I listen to a lot of music and I spend a lot of time. I have a very beautiful um, Steinway um, made out of hardwood mahogany in my house, which I rarely play, um, what did, which what, is very sad. What does rarely mean? Well, it must be years now. Right. Um, but, um, it's, and I don't know why. I thought maybe when I retired I would play the piano, but then 
some guys from Sweden came along and ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another theme we could touch on. How, how has it been entirely, entirely positive, entirely negative, entirely what? Getting this prize? Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, first of all, it's big. I mean, that's the right way to describe it. And everybody will tell you this, right? You must have heard this over and over again. It certainly changes your lives. Um, I think probably more for economists than in some sciences, just because there, there's a limited amount of interest in DNA repair, if you know what I mean. I do, yeah. Whereas maybe there should be a lot more. But <laughs> there's a lot of interest in what economists have to say, especially people who are prepared to get up and say, talk about the future of capitalism. For so for me, it's big in the sense that it's not something you could label as being good or bad because it changes your life and there's no real perspective. I certainly wouldn't give it back if I could, but it's certainly, you know, for someone my age, you know, I'm 73 now, going on 74, it, the temptation is to do much more than really makes sense for an old guy. So, you know, too much travel. And, you know, we were in Yokohama with you guys. Then we had to come back in a rush, um, you know, after Alan Kruger died. Yes, I, I remember, yes. You know, we were giving the Tanner lectures at Stanford, and then we Anne was lecturing in Warwick, and then I was in Paris last week, and I'm in London and Oxford next week. It's really too much. And, but it's very hard. You know, it's nice to do things like this, for instance, and it's nice to be involved in this review I'm doing in London and so on. So it's not a good bad. It's just life is really different. It's just it's just it's 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 the role life has thrown you, I suppose, and you need exactly you embrace it. But yeah, I mean, if you were to choose for big things that change your life, um, <laughs> this would not be a bad one to choose. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, true. That's a nice. No, that's a nice point to end on. Okay. Okay. You've been very kind in speaking to me. Thank you very, oh, very much. Oh, thank you, Adam. It's always fun talking to you. Greetings to Anne also. Thank you. I will. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast was produced by Phil Tinterland for Nobel Media. The host was Adam Smith, and the producer was me, Fanny Harjestam. Music by Epidemic Sound. Make sure to visit the official website, nobelprize.org, for more in-depth content on the laureate's awarded work. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.